Almighty God, who didst call Timothy to do the work of an evangelist and teacher, and didst make him strong to endure hardship. Strengthen us to stand fast in adversity and to live godly and righteous lives in this present time, that with sure confidence we may look for our blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Welcome back. Uh, as we begin, uh, really today, a study of 2 Timothy. We did some background information last week on the Apostle Paul and his young protege, Timothy, and the circumstances surrounding this letter. Well, today we're actually going to dive into the letter itself. So if you have your Bibles, and again, I encourage you to bring them with you, um, whether it's on a device or whether it's in the book itself. Um, I prefer the book. Um, it's up to you, but um, it's easier for me to read, mark, and learn uh, than it is using a device. But whatever is convenient for you, I'm reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible, and we are going to start at 2 Timothy today, beginning at verse 1. And we're going to just read probably through the first seven verses today, and we'll see if we actually get through those seven verses in our study. But 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois, and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Now, of course, one of the things we pointed out last week as we begin uh, the study of this letter was that this is an epistle. Uh, this was a letter. Uh, this is not a gospel. This is not like the book of Acts, which is a, simply a record of events. This is a personal letter. Many of Paul's letters were written, of course, to churches, generally, not always, but generally to churches that he had established. So, for example, when he wrote the, the letters to the, the, or the letter to the Galatians, it was written to churches that Paul had established, we think, on his first missionary journey. When Paul wrote to the Philippians, he was writing to a church in Philippi that he had established. The same was true for the letter to the Ephesians. Romans is not the case. When Paul wrote to the church in Rome, he was writing to a church that he had not established. And incidentally, a church that he had not visited at the time that he wrote the epistle. But most of the time, Paul was writing, as we said, to churches, and most of the time to churches that he had established. But from time to time, he wrote letters to individuals. Now, those letters to individuals contain very important information. They are authoritative for our lives as Christian people, but we have to remember the context in which they were written. And this is one of them. Paul is writing to his young friend, who we said last week is really in charge. We would call him a bishop today. He is the bishop, the pastor in charge of the church in Ephesus. 
far across the Aegean and Adriatic seas. And Paul, as we know, is already in prison. Uh, the letter begins in the customary way for first century letters. When we write letters today, and incidentally, most of us don't write letters today. You know, most of us send emails today, don't we? That's the, the primary form of communication. Now, I'm just going to go on just a slight rant here, uh, just, just <laughs> because i am got the podium and I can do that from time to time. So, one of the dangers of emails, at least for somebody who is trained in history and as an historian, is that we have the potential to lose the past uh, by means of emails. I mean, think about it. If the Apostle Paul had been living in an age of text messaging and an age of email and had written this marvelous letter to 2 Timothy and then it got deleted from the server, where would we be? And uh, we are losing that because so much of our correspondence, you see, is being lost. So we can be thankful that the Apostle Paul lived at just the right time and that these letters have been passed on to us uh, to the present day. But when people used to write letters, and looking out over this group here, I think many of you probably grew up in a time in which you did write letters. And if you were raised in polite society here in Charleston, you were also taught to write thank you notes. And when you write notes or when you write letters, you realize that normally the addressee comes first. Dear so-and-so. And if you want to see who wrote the letter, what do you have to do? Well, you have to turn it over or get to the bottom of it. That's right. To see who actually wrote the letter. Now, sometimes we look at the return address on the envelope and we figure it out. But the point is that that's the way we write letters. The addressee comes first and the sender comes last. That was not the way it was in the ancient world. Um, papyrus uh, was very expensive. It was a very valuable thing. And so what happened was that the sender came first. So he established his authority and the whole reason why you should take the time to read this letter. And then the recipient. And so we see that that is precisely the model that we have here. The letter begins, Paul, not dear Timothy, but Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus. It was often the case that when letters like this were written, particularly letters of an official nature, the person's credentials were established right there at the beginning. And that is exactly what Paul is doing. So this letter begins in the customary way in the first century. Paul is the sender, so he comes first, and he establishes right off the bat his credentials. Why it is that we should read this letter and why it is that we should abide by it. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Paul says right from the very beginning that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now that is a very important New Testament term, apostle. But in order to understand how it's being used, you have to understand the context because that word apostle could be used in two senses in the New Testament. It can be used in a generic or general sense, and it can also be used in a specific or solemn sense. Uh, the word apostle, literally translated, simply means a messenger or a sent one. It was normally used as language of the maritime service. When a fleet was sent off on a mission, it was sent off on an apostolic mission. So this is really the language of the Navy 
that the church adopts in these early days. And an apostle was a messenger or a sent one. And as I said, it can be used in a general sense. And so sometimes that word apostle is applied to all sorts of people. Uh, in Acts chapter 14, for example, we're told that Paul and Barnabas were apostles. So Barnabas is listed as an apostle. He's not one of the people we normally think of as one of the apostles. But Luke, in the book of Acts, refers to him as an apostle. Why? Because he was a sent one. He was a messenger. Sent from whom? Well, he was sent by the church in Antioch in Acts chapter 13. We're told that that was the beginning of the missionary era. God the Holy Spirit spoke to that church while they were worshiping and said, Set apart for me Paul and Barnabas to the work to which I have called them. And we're told they laid their hands on them, and here comes the phrase, and sent them off. And that was the first missionary journey. So they were sent off. And so, in a sense, they were ambassadors. They were apostles. And, and to make things even more interesting, in Hebrews chapter 3, Jesus is described as an apostle. He's described as the great high priest in Hebrews, but he's also described as the great apostle. Now, of course, Jesus is not one of the apostles in the same way that we think of that. But what we mean is that Jesus was the sent one. For God so loved the world that he what? Sent his only begotten son or gave his only begotten son to the end that all that believe in him might not perish but have everlasting life. God sent his son into the world to save Sinner. So in that sense, Jesus is an apostle. He is the sent one. He is the messenger. He is the ultimate messenger because he is the second person of the triune Godhead. So understand that that word apostle, Paul uses it here at the very beginning, establishing his credentials, can be used in this general or generic sense. It could just be anybody who's a messenger. But there is also a very specific and solemn sense in which the word is used. And that is how Paul is using it here. What do I mean by specific or solemn sense? Well, keep your finger there in 2 Timothy for just a moment and turn to Mark chapter 3. In Mark chapter 3, we're told that Jesus had many disciples. We don't know exactly how many. Um, certain numbers are given throughout the Gospels. At one point, crowds in excess of 5,000 people followed Jesus. And within that 5,000, there were those who were his disciples, his followers. Um, the book of John says that at one point, many of his disciples, offended by what Jesus had to say about being the bread of life and the only true satisfaction, turned back and followed him no more. We're told that right before the resurrection, there were 120 disciples. So that word disciple can also be used in a generic, but also in a very specific sense. And what we find here in Mark chapter 13 is this specific or solemn sense in which Jesus calls out from this larger group of disciples 12 apostles. Mark chapter 3, verse 13. And he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed 12, and look at what it says, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, and then you get a list of them. So when we think of the apostles, this is generally what we think of, the twelve apostles. And who were they? Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges. 
That is sons of thunder. Boy, we could unpack that for days, I'm sure. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Cananean and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. So those are the 12 apostles. They are not just apostles in a generic sense. They have been called out from all of the disciples to be 12 specific apostles. And this is what we mean in a solemn or specific sense. These 12. In Acts chapter 1, verses 23 through 26, we're told that after Judas had committed suicide, and this is after the resurrection, they needed to fill Judas's spot, didn't they? And so they chose from among them one of the disciples, small d, who had been with them from the beginning to take Judas's place. And then, you know, they chose two, and they cast lots, and the lot fell to who? Matthias. And Matthias became the twelfth apostle in the place of Judas. So when we think of the apostles in a solemn or specific sense, this is generally what we think of. We think of those who were specifically called by Christ, and they had certain qualifications that had to be met. First of all, in Acts chapter 1, verses 23 through 26, the apostle Peter makes it very clear. They had to be someone who had been with them from the beginning. That is, a witness to Jesus' life and to his ministry. From the beginning of his ministry would have been from the time that he was baptized by John in the Jordan River. And then they'd been with Jesus over the course of his life and ministry until his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. So they had to be with the Lord from the beginning. They had to be an eyewitness to the resurrection. And they were people to whom Christ gave specific, and this is very important, specific authority, power. We're going to skip around just a little bit this morning to sort of unpack this term, apostle, this morning, because it's very important. And it's very important to understanding what Paul has to say to Timothy. And really, it has great significance for your life and for mine. So in John chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, this is what Jesus says. Now, he is speaking to the twelve. And listen to what he says. And John 14, incidentally, is part of what is known as the farewell discourse. That's what scholars call it. Because it's among the last words that Jesus spoke to his disciples prior to his crucifixion. Here's a, here's a little bit of trivia for you. Fully half of the Gospel of John, and it's 20-some chap, 20 chapters, fully half of the Gospel of John is given over, listen to this, to just the last week of Jesus' life. Now, Jesus lived for 33 years, roughly. He ministered for how many of those? Three years. John is recording the story of Jesus' life, and he gives over half the gospel to just the last seven days. What does that tell you about the significance of what we call Holy Week? And that's true of the other gospels as well. They don't give over fully half, but Mark, for example, gives over one-third of the gospel to just Jesus last week. So as much as Jesus' teaching was important, as much as Jesus' miracles were important, the real significance of Jesus' life is what he came to do in that last week. Everything else was a build-up to that great climax. 
And that's why, as the church, we put a special focus on that holy week. Those days between the Lord's triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and His resurrection. So John chapter 14, even though you're only about halfway through the gospel, nevertheless is dealing with the last days of Jesus' life, His last time with the disciples. And He's preparing them. That's why it's called the farewell discourse. He's, he's preparing to say farewell to them. Now, they don't realize it. Over the course of three years, Jesus had told them time and time again that he was going to be betrayed at the hands of his own people, that he was going to be executed, that he would rise again, and the disciples said what? They'd refused to listen. In fact, Peter had said, God forbid this must never happen to you. So Jesus is preparing them here for his departure, and he begins by saying in John chapter 14, let not your hearts be troubled. <laughs> And he goes on to say this in verse 12. For truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Now, when he says whoever, he's really referring specifically to these apostles. Because John chapter 14 is spoken only to the apostles. It's not spoken to the crowds. It's spoken specifically to these 12. And he's saying whoever, that is among you, believes in me, listen to this, will do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Now you think about that for a minute. Over the course of three years, they had been with Jesus. And these 12 men in particular had seen some amazing things, hadn't they? They had seen Jesus open the eyes of the blind. They had seen Jesus cleanse lepers, 10 lepers on the border of Samaria by the sheer power of his word. They had seen Jesus walk on the water, calm the storm. They had seen him raise at least three people that we know of from the dead. Jairus' daughter, the widow of Nain's son, and Lazarus, who'd been in the tomb for what? Four days, whose body had started to decompose. And Jesus is turning to them and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if you believe in me, the time is coming when you will do what? Greater things than I have done. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were Peter standing there, I'd be thinking to myself, Yeah, right. Not me, not Peter who's afflicted with foot and mouth disease. Somebody once said, the only time Peter ever opened his mouth in the New Testament was so that he could insert his other foot. It was so true that they must have thought to themselves, I could never do these things. But Jesus was saying that yes, they would. They would receive power. And he makes that point very clear, of course, in Acts chapter 1. He says, you will receive power. The Greek word for power in Acts chapter 1 is dynamis. It's a great word. Jesus says to his disciples, I'm going to the Father, but the time is coming when you will receive power. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The Greek word is dynamis. It's the word from which we get the term dynamite. When Alfred Nobel in the 1870s, or in the late 1860s, I guess it was, invented an explosive power, the likes of which the world had never seen before. He went to a friend of his who was a Greek scholar, and he says, I need a name for this invention. He said, what's the Greek word for explosive power? And his friend said, dynamis. And so Nobel said, then I'll name my invention dynamite. Jesus is saying to his disciples, the time is coming when the Holy Spirit will come upon you with such power, explosive power, that you will do even greater things than I have done. And listen to this, it doesn't stop there. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 18, 
Jesus says this. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now that's power. That's authority. And when we think about an apostle in a solemn or specific sense, this is what we're talking about. Not just somebody who's been sent on a mission, but somebody who's been specifically chosen by Christ himself to be his messenger and who is given authority and power. All right? When Paul, here at the beginning of 2 Timothy, claims to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, he is not talking about being an apostle in a generic sense. He is claiming to be one with those 12. He is claiming that he's been chosen by Christ and he has been given Christ's authority and Christ's power. And you'll find that throughout his letters, even one of these intimate letters, through the majority of Paul's letter, not all of them, but through the majority of Paul's letter, he always makes this point that he is an apostle. And he is an apostle that has been chosen what? By God. Paul doesn't say, well, I applied for a scholarship and I won it. And I'm now an apostle. He doesn't say that I went out and I earned a degree and I'm now an apostle. He says, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus, what? By the will of God. Now you might say to yourself, now wait a minute. I thought the apostles were chosen by Christ. I thought he empowered them. Paul wasn't there with the others. So how does he qualify as an apostle? Well, he would say, like the others, I was an eyewitness to the resurrection. No, I wasn't there on that first Easter morning. True enough. But he would say, I did encounter the risen Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. When I was struck blind and I heard that voice come from heaven saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I said, Lord, who are you? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Paul would have said, I met Jesus. It was a real encounter, as real as anything that Peter encountered. As real as anything Thomas encountered when Thomas said, unless I can take my fingers and put it in the nail prints, unless I can take my hand and put it in his side, I'll not believe. Paul said, I had that kind of an encounter with Jesus. He knocked me off my ass, onto my... And I had this new experience. I encountered the risen Jesus Christ. This is the way he describes it. This is a little bit of autobiographical material. In 1 Corinthians, it's a good thing you had, God gave you nine fingers and two thumbs because he knew you would be in this class and you're going to be skipping around. But 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8, this is Paul, it's autobiographical information. Listen to what he says. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Now, he's just recording. He said that's what made them apostles. He died according to the Scriptures. He was raised according to the Scriptures, and he appeared to the Twelve. 
and to Cephas. Look at verse 6. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of all, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, listen to this, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So Paul is saying, I'm an apostle, first of all, because I'm an eyewitness to the resurrection. The same Jesus that appeared to Cephas and to the twelve and to 500 brethren at one time appeared to me also, although it was after the fact as one untimely born. But he said that's the way it was. Furthermore, we said that in order to be an apostle, you had to be what? Specifically chosen by the Lord. Well, look at how Paul begins this second letter to Timothy. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, what? By the will of God. Paul is making it very clear God chose him. And we even find this in the story of Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9. When Paul was struck blind and led by the hand by his companions into the city of Damascus to the house of Simon, who lived on what? Straight Street. I love the fact that we get the address. They actually give us the address on Straight Street. And the story goes that God called on a man by the name of Ananias and said, there is a fellow by the name of Saul. He's been struck blind, and you are to go in and to lay your hands on him that he may receive his sight. And Ananias says, okay. And um, who is this Saul? A little more information, please. And the Lord says, this is the same Saul who was down there in Jerusalem. You've heard about him. And Ananias responds, whoa. I've heard about this fellow, and I know what he's done to your saints in Jerusalem, and he's come here, deputized by the Sanhedrin, to arrest people like me and drag us back for trial and execution. I think you've got the wrong man. And the Lord said, no, he's the right man. And I always imagine Ananias saying, no, I think I'm the wrong man. I, I don't want to go and do this. And the Lord says, you go, and this is the important part. He is my chosen instrument. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So that's the key phrase. He is my chosen instrument. Who chose Paul? God chose Paul. Christ chose Paul. So Paul says, I'm an apostle because I was an eyewitness to the resurrection. Furthermore, I was chosen, specifically chosen, to a specific task. Peter and James and the others, they were called primarily, not exclusively, but primarily to be apostles to the who? To the Jews. But God has called me a Jew, a Jew of Jews, a Hebrew of Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, to be the apostle to the Gentiles. So it says, I am number 12 plus 1. And there's much to suggest to us, incidentally, that Peter accepted Paul, that the other apostles accepted Paul's apostolic credentials. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter is writing, and this is what is sometimes referred to as a general or Catholic epistle because it's not written to an individual, it's written to the whole church. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, listen to what Peter says. He says, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. 
just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you. Now he calls Paul a what? A brother. You say, well, okay, but, but everybody that was in Christ was a brother. Paul could be a brother of Peter without being an apostle, except for what follows. According to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them, speaks in them of these matters. So he's referring to Paul's letters. He says, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. I think that's wonderful, isn't it? How many of you have ever read Paul's letters and found some things hard to understand? Well, even Peter had a rough time, evidently. He said, there are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. And then he says this, as they do the other scriptures. So what is Peter saying? He's saying that Paul's writings, Paul's letters are Scripture. That means that they are authoritative. They are as authoritative as any of the other Scriptures. Now, of course, when Peter was talking, there was no New Testament. There was only the Old Testament. And for any Jew, that was binding in every respect upon their lives. So when he takes Paul's writing and he compares Paul's writings to Scripture, to the Old Testament, to the first five books of the law, my goodness, he's saying this is authoritative for your life. And Jews believed that the Old Testament was not simply the words of men, the words of the prophet Isaiah. This was what? It's the Word of God. And so you can see Peter's making it very clear. He regards Paul as an apostle, having been given authority, having been chosen by Christ, having been a witness to the resurrection. Now, you're probably wondering to yourself, this is all very interesting, but who cares? <laughs> Why is apostleship significant? Well, it's significant for a number of reasons. First of all, it reminds us that Jesus continued to talk and to work in and through the lives of the apostles. You know, they had a distinct advantage over us, those early believers and those 12 apostles in particular. They actually walked with Jesus. They ate with Jesus. Hank's going to talk about it in his sermon somewhat. He talked about when you attached yourself to a rabbi, you spent your whole life with that rabbi. You slept with the rabbi, you ate with the rabbi, you traveled with the rabbi, you cared for the rabbi if he got sick, he cared for you if you got sick. I mean, it, you became a part of his extended family. All right, that, that's what it meant to be a follower of a rabbi in that sense. These 12 were able to do that with Jesus. Did you and I have that opportunity? How many of you think to yourself, man, I wish I would have been able. I, it would be a whole lot easier for me to believe if I knew that Jesus had actually spoken those words to me. You ever felt that way? Well, what we're being told is that the apostles understood that. They realized that they had a distinct advantage, and that's one of the reasons why they wrote these things out for us. That Christ might continue to speak in and through their words. Acts chapter 1 begins in this way. The book of Acts. Now, you know, the book of Acts is called the Acts of the what? The Apostles. And here's how it begins. In, the, in my first book, O Theophilus, I have dwelt that all that Jesus began to do and teach. 
Now, if you know anything about the book of Acts, and if you've been in my study on the book of Acts, you know that Acts is actually the second volume to a two-volume work. The first volume is the Gospel of Luke. Luke wrote both of these books, and he addressed them to the same individual or group of individuals, Theophilus. It's a word that simply means beloved of God. So Luke wrote both of these books. The first volume is the Gospel of Luke, and the second volume is the book of Acts. Now, look at what he says, and listen carefully to the words. In my first book, O Theophilus, I have dwelt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, that word began implies a what? A continuing action, doesn't it? If you begin to do something, that implies that you've just started. You're not finished. Well, if in the first book, he writes about all that Jesus began to do and teach, the implication is that here in the second book, he's going to talk about all that Jesus what? Continued to do and teach. Except that the book goes on for 20-some chapters and Jesus leaves in the very first one he ascends. So you ask yourself, how in the world can Jesus continue to do anything if he's no longer in the scene? Well, the answer is, he does it in and through the lives of the apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit who comes in the very first part of this book. So a real, really, the name of this book ought to be the continuing acts of Jesus Christ in and through the lives of the apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit, which is a rather long title page, so we simply call it the Acts of the Apostles. You need to understand that the apostles were important because Jesus was continuing to work through them. They weren't going to do this in and of their own strength. On one occasion, we're told that Peter and John were on their way up to the temple at the appointed time of prayer, and they encountered a man at the temple gate called Beautiful, begging for alms. And Peter went up to him and he said, Silver and gold we do not have, but what we have we give to you. In the name of Jesus, rise and walk. And we're told that immediately the man felt a strengthening in his ankles. And he stood up on his own two feet and he walked. And, and Peter and John continued to make their way into the temple precincts. But as they were going in, a crowd began to gather because this man was leaping and praising God. He'd been, he'd been lame forever. And all of a sudden he's now been healed. And so he's praising God. And we're told that Peter has this crowd that gathers around. And he has an opportunity to preach. And so he seizes the opportunity. And here's what he says. He says, you think that it is by our own power and our own strength that this man stands before you healed? But I tell you, it is not by our own power, our own strength. It is by the power of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, but God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you. In other words, Peter is saying... We are merely conduits for Christ's power. Christ is still active in the world. He is just using us as the vessels of his transformation. So the apostles are important for us because Christ is continuing to speak through them. He's continuing to act through them. And when they speak, they speak with his authority, which is one of the reasons why every Sunday, we stand up, whether it's in morning prayer and we say the Apostles' Creed, or in the Eucharist where we say the Nicene Creed, one of the things that we say we believe in, in addition to God the Father Almighty, Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, we say we believe in what? One holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. Ours is a faith that is built upon the witness, the testimony, the authority 
of the apostles. And that is exactly what Paul himself says in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, you have been made a part of the church, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Build upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. What that means for you and for me in this day and age is very important. It means that when Paul speaks, whether it's here in 2 Timothy or Ephesians or Philippians or Romans, wherever it may be, Paul is speaking, ladies and gentlemen, with the authority of Jesus. It is divine authority. Now that's very important because Paul, of all the New Testament writers, tackles some of the most controversial issues in the world today. Paul tackles issues, for example, of human sexuality. Read Romans chapter 1 sometime. We don't have time to go through it today, but Paul deals with that. We're living in an age in which people can self-define. You can be a man, but you're trapped, you think, in a woman's body. Or you can um, today feel like a man and tomorrow feel like a woman, or whatever it may be. We're reading all about this. We see it with the whole battle about gender-neutral bathrooms, for example. Now, however you feel about that, you need to understand the Apostle Paul is not silent on those matters. He addresses them head-on, Romans chapter 1. Paul also addresses issues of controversy today, like the issue of the relationship between husbands and wives, and who has proper authority, spiritually speaking, in those relationships, husbands and wives. He talks about the relationship of parents to children. Boy, don't anybody tell me how to raise my kids. Well, Paul does. Paul also deals with issues of the state and the role of the state and the authority that the state has in our personal lives. Now, how many of you would agree that issues of human sexuality, issues of marriage, and issues of the government are controversial issues today? Anybody would agree with that? Paul tackles them all head on. And sometimes we do not like what Paul has to say. More than once I've gotten into a debate with people, particularly when I was in seminary, where they would say, well, I know that's what Paul says. But I want to know what Jesus said. And see, that's the idea. Jesus is the trump card. We'll, we'll pull out Jesus. Yeah, well, we know what Paul said. But Jesus trumps Paul. Not according to what the New Testament claims. In fact, the Articles of Religion in the prayer book said it is not lawful to interpret one portion of Scripture that it be repugnant to another. So the point I want you to understand is that when Paul is speaking here, he is not speaking. When he establishes credentials at the beginning of a letter as an apostle, he's saying, I'm chosen by Christ. I bear Christ's authority. I have Christ's power. So I'm like E.F. Hutton. When I talk, you need to listen. This is not, 2 Timothy, a dead letter. It is a living word. It may have been written 2,000 years ago, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, it speaks to us across time and space with the same power and with the same authority and with the same wisdom as if the Lord Jesus Christ himself were speaking. So Paul establishes his credentials. He says, this is who I am. Now, he addresses the letter. 
to Timothy, whom he describes as his what? Dear son, some translations say. This translation says, my beloved child. My dear son, my beloved child. And then he goes on to say these three things. He says, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Most of the time when Paul addressed a letter like this, he would say to the church, grace and peace. But here with Timothy, his dear child, his dear son, he adds one more phrase. I want you to have grace. What is grace? We've already talked about grace. Grace is God's undeserved, unearned favor. He wants him to have peace. What is peace? Well, it's tranquility. It's serenity. It's the one thing that's so elusive in so many people's lives. We have restless hearts, don't we? Isn't that what St. Augustine said? Oh, Lord, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. We have many people with restless hearts. So he wants Timothy to have peace in his life. But he also prays for what? He prays for mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is help for the helpless. It's what we see in Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, who finds that man by the roadside, beaten and naked, and picks him up and has mercy on him. He has mercy on him. This is Paul, a father who's thinking about his dearly beloved child. And he's praying for his young son. And of all the things that he's praying for, he's praying for these three things. That he may have peace in his life. That he may have grace in his life. And that he may, above all, have mercy in his life. If you think about it, those are three things to pray for on behalf of your own children, isn't it? There are many things that parents are concerned about with their children, and rightly so. We live in very difficult and, as the Chinese curse says, interesting times. But if you're going to pray for your children, and there are all kinds of things, you may pray that, they, that they're intellectual, that they're bright, that they win the Rhodes Scholarship. But of all the things to pray for, Paul sets us an example here right at the beginning of this letter. When you pray for your children, whether it's your son or your daughter, whether they're grown or young, or you're praying for your grandchildren, pray that they may have grace, that God may have grace on their lives. Favor to the undeserving. Pray that they may have peace in their lives. It does not matter if they amass a huge fortune or they get fame. There are so many people out there in the world today that have everything that the world says should make them happy and content, and they are miserable. And yet there are other people who have nothing that the world has to offer, and yet they have peace. Jesus didn't even have a place to lay his head. Pray that your children have peace in their lives. That they don't go through their lives being restless. And pray that in those moments when they feel helpless, they will discover that there is one who has mercy on those in need. Pray for those things. Next week, when we come back together again, I take it back, we're not meeting next week. Next week is um, President's week, Day weekend. The schools are closed, and uh, we have a shortage of Sunday school teachers, so I'm told that we have canceled Sunday school. So we will not meet uh, next week, but we will meet the following week. And when we come back, we're going to take a look at something interesting. We're going to take a look at family ministry. 
we're going to take a look at families. We're going to talk about parents and how they should raise their children. Now, why are we going to do that? Because look at what Paul says in, first, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. He says, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy, for I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And now, I'm sure, lives in you. Interesting word there, sincere. Your sincere faith. You know where we get that word sincere? In the ancient world, they used to make pottery. And uh, pottery was expensive, and from time to time, the potter would break a piece of pottery. And so you know what he would do? If he was dishonest, he would take wax, and he would pour hot wax down into the cracks, and he would mend the pot as the wax dried. And then he'd paint over it and sell it. Well, it looked good to you until you went home and poured boiling water into it. Then the wax melted and the pot fell apart. And so they started to stamp on the bottom of pottery, sincera. It meant without wax. You're not being duped. When Paul talks about a sincere faith, this is what he means. It doesn't have the appearance. It is a genuine faith. And where did he get that faith? Paul says it lived first in his grandmother, and then it lived in his mother, and now it lived in him. There is no more powerful environment for the growth of a Christian life than the family. And so when we come back again next, well, two weeks from now, we'll take a look at family ministry. We'll take a look at Timothy's family. We'll take a look at our families. And then, lest you think that I'm just sending you home with all of this ethereal knowledge that has no practical significance whatsoever, I'm going to give you seven pointers for parents two weeks from today. Let's close with a word of prayer. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for the Apostle Paul. We thank you for his words, words which come with your authority. Grant us the grace, Lord, to take his word. And like an aspirin, Lord, not to chew it. You chew an aspirin and so often it makes you feel worse. But grant us the grace, Lord, to swallow it whole, trusting that it will serve its medicinal value in our lives. Make us strong and healthy as the people of God. For we ask these things in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen.